1: Tena Etefano, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host uh, Edamon for the podcast New Books in Australia and New Zealand Studies. Um, I hope everybody is doing well out there. Uh, you've had a good summer. we are having a very happy, happy New Year. Uh, New Zealand has been great. We've been having some great weather recently, especially in Auckland. Today is a fantastic day. We are um, talking to two great authors of the new book called the uh, called Stepping Up COVID-19 Checkpoints and Rangatiratanga um, the authors are uh, Dr Maria Barge um uh, who to Te and and is an associate associated Associate professor in Maori studies at uh, the Awaka, uh, which is the Victoria University of Wellington, and her research spans a broad range of topics, including Maori representation on local central government, uh, Maori resource management, re- renewable energy, climate change, and diverse economies. Um, uh, the other author we have uh, today is uh, Luke uh, Fitzmaurice. Um, He's a teaching fellow in Maori studies at uh, the Heringa uh, Victoria University of Wellington again, and a PhD candidate in law at the University of Otago. His research covers topics related to Maori and the law, including family law, Te Tiriti o Waitangi, and the uh, rights of tamakiri, uh, Tamariki children, whānau family in child protection system and according to the book he's a bit tired because he's a new father um so congratulations luke and um welcome to the podcast you both
2: thank you for having us
1: okay so just to start with i'll start with the uh with you uh maria um in terms of your background just for our international audiences um uh, what is your background and what has led you into academics
0: Well, in some ways, I might not have ever left academics. (laughs) 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 I've always been passionate about politics um, and the state of the world and trying to make it a better place. Uh, And for me, also being a lover of books and reading and research, uh, naturally, I've kind of hung around in the university um, as a space where I think it's, you know, not only desired, but kind of, you know, your job to be doing these sorts of things. Um, so love that. And um, as you mentioned, I'm from Te Arawa and Ngā which are iwi in the Bay of Plenty slash Central North Island um, of Aotearoa, New Zealand. And uh, always keen to help out my hapū and iwi as well. And so the issues that come before them, I see as kind of key research topics. So, Yeah.
1: Great. Thank you. And, and, and Luke? Yeah, I um,
2: came to being an academic, I guess, through, I used to work in government and I mm. enjoyed that for a while. And um, that was what I did when I finished uni. And over time, just personally, I felt like there were these bigger questions that I wanted to ask and answer that weren't our role day to day when you're mm. doing policy development. And they sometimes were but the job was to get on with the job. And I always felt like there were these underlying questions that I wanted to um, be a part of answering and asking that I felt academia was a way to do that and research was a way to do that. And the opportunity to teach as well um, was one that I really wanted to kind of seek out. And But those big questions were... Were what kind of hooked me in and so doing a phd and kind of easing my way into the academic world was mm. was related to that yeah oh
1: well, that's uh, that, that's quite fascinating because um for me as well it was a, a bit of a i'm not Back in academia, I'm doing my masters. I don't know if it, that's considered academia. I guess the, it is. Masters yes, is. Totally. I always thought that. He, yep. I always thought Very PhD, PhD was academia. Um, I was w- working in a, in a in a pharmaceutical company for a, for a while, and then they um, they always uh, being the brown, brown guy in the in the in the in the company. They always thought that I knew things uh, more than other people, and. Uh, and also, I was reading up, and I was very much interested in books, and I was trying to find my place in Aotearoa as well. I said, "Listen, this is not this can't continue anymore. I need to do it properly so i then I went to start doing the masters so um, it a, is is a great journey as everybody's on um coming to the book, what really um led you to write on this very specific topic because it's it's a quite a um Quite a, a divisive and popular, you can say in a, in a way that it always pops up. This topic every time. Um, uh, stepping up uh, the book, COVID nineteen checkpoints and Ranga Tiratanga. So, which brought what brought you to this kopapa and uh, to write about it?
2: There were a few things, I think, um, oh. for me. One of the initial hooks was that I felt like, as you said, the checkpoints were very well-known in a sense. They were often in the media and in the news a lot uh, when they were established and then ever since, really, they've um, featured. But I personally felt like there was this bigger story that wasn't part of those media narratives, that it was most often... Some people are doing this thing because of COVID, setting up checkpoints mm-hmm. on the road, and some media stories said it was good, some media said it was bad, but most often um, there was this lack of deeper exploration of what those things might mean, and I was just interested in digging into that really and finding out from the perspective of the people who ran the checkpoints why... Did they do it? What was their motive? What were their motivations for setting them up? What were they um, hoping to achieve before, during, afterwards? And what does that say about this bigger? What's the bigger story there? Because I think when we think about something like Rangatiratanga, for example, or Indigenous self-determination in any context, it's often this quite abstract um, idea to people who aren't very familiar with that, and and even people who are enthusiastic about rangatiratanga and say uh, Māori self-determination is a good thing, often, um, and I would have put myself in this category a while ago, couldn't specifically articulate or say what that might look like, and I felt like the checkpoints were a very concrete example of that mm. and a very tangible um, way to tell a story around uh, self-determination that was so well-known at a surface level about what the checkpoints were and what they involved, but was this way to tell another story that people might be less familiar with. And then alongside that, to capture and share the perspectives of the people who were running it and who were out there on the front line every day during the lockdowns uh, was Another thing that we just personally going into the project wanted to um, do for their sake as well. So there were a few things in there that made it a project that felt worth pursuing.
1: Yeah, and um, you mentioned um, Rangatiratanga. Uh, Just for our audiences, what is the significance um, of the concept um, what is the significance of this concept in terms of Aotearoa um, and having this uh, the the partnership between uh, Tangata Whenua and, um, and 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 the government, and why is it so important for all people of um, New Zealand, Aotearoa?
0: Something about that. Um, so tanga for international folks and. Possibly for some people in Aotearoa, um, they may not, be unfam- may not be familiar with rangatiratanga as a concept, but it is loosely self-determination, um, translated as self-determination. And of course, it's one of the key um, elements of Te Tiriti o Waitangi, as you uh, mentioned, where um, Te Teno Rangatiratanga was reaffirmed uh, for Māori in that treaty between uh, the British and Uh, Māori rangatira in 1840. Um, So, you know, we know that there are two versions, one's in English, one's in te reo, we know under international law, in cases of dispute, we look to the uh, indigenous text and um, and so that's where we we look to our te reo Māori language version of Te Tiriti in which we have this um, concept of rangatiratanga um, embedded there being reaffirmed for Māori, so self-determination being reaffirmed for Māori. So that's something I think that for many many Māori has been key to this idea of a partnership between the Crown and Māori since 1840 and a number of misunderstandings and disputes that we've had in fact can be traced back to um, the British trying to assert their... Assumption of sovereignty uh, and Maori um, firmly sitting with this um, Tanga and wanting to keep that um, idea that these two strands of law and politics and economics actually would continue side by side. Hmm. Um. It's
1: it's 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 very interesting. I I, I did my uh, last paper was in Indigenous psychologies and 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 I was uh, asked by um, um, my my professor to choose a indigenous concept and I chose tinuranga Tiratanga. And I, when, uh, when I started to delve into it, um, it was one of those terms that you can might call it gateway concepts that once you, once I, I, I I, I dipped into it. It turns out, rather than a swimming pool, it's like a whole ocean. So <laughs> it is, um, and, and 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 is a very, uh, and it's it's core to the it 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 is the core to the tiratry according to my understanding. My question is, that it's it has been mentioned in the book at the later part in the learnings part of it, but I, I think it's a good point to talk about it. Um, where does tino rangatira apply in terms of levels? Um, uh, at the EV level, at the hapu level, the whānau level, at the individual level. And uh, how does it apply to the Crown or, 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 or for instance, Tangata uh, treaty uh, who are not Māori?
2: I think yeah,
1: um,
2: um, it applies at all those levels. And oh. one of the things we were keen um, to communicate is that that, from a Crown perspective, is often misunderstood. The Crown has had this tendency to narrow the concept as much as they can and one way they have done that has been to only deal with iwi and even only deal with um, particular form particular uh, organizational structures within iwi so they want to deal with the corporate uh, runanga structures with iwi and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that but it is not the only expression of rangatiratanga. Rangatiratanga is something that exists at a hapu level um, and something that exists at a whānau level and, like you said, can even exist individually. I think those whānau and hapu groupings um, are the most neglected from a Crown perspective, is that it's it's inconvenient for the Crown to have to deal with those smaller groups. But in from a totility perspective, that's where rangatiratanga lies and that's the duty that exists to not just force um, indigenous peoples to cooperate with the crown in whichever ways the crown deems convenient for them but in ways which actually are exercised and chosen by those groups and whatever forms they they take so they may take iwi level and we saw that in some of the checkpoints they were iwi run uh, some were cooperation between different iwi but others were on a much smaller community level and a whānau level and a hapu level and those are just as valid and sometimes even more important mm.
1: the um so in, in terms of the tr- triggering of this action of setting up uh, the checkpoints um uh, what did you think was the reason behind stepping up and doing taking this uh taking this uh action um where you know in other parts of the country other communities um uh did not maybe you know in, in Christchurch people didn't take this action in in um and and non-maori people also did not take this action. so what specifically were the reasons that led to people in these areas to take uh, this action of setting up the checkpoints
2: some of the communities in particular that we spoke to had a real sense that uh, the government had let them down in the past and they had a very strong awareness of their vulnerability to COVID if it was allowed to come through and so we one was in the um, far north where health resources there are just really neglected by the government over a very long period. One was on the East Coast, where there's a similar situation. I think they had a a three-hour drive to the nearest hospital, which itself was a very small hospital. And this sense that they had to step up, there was a combination of things. So having to step up due to that isolation and that sense that no one was going to do it for them, a duty to do that for the people in their communities, And a right to do that based on Mm. their tikanga and what they knew to be right and their kind of duties towards their own people was the combination of things that in some cases just made it seem um, like the only option and the logical thing to do from their perspective. Mm. This wasn't this determination of, oh, this is going to be controversial, maybe we should do it. It was like, this is just, the only obvious thing for us, and how Uh-oh. could we
0: not? And I think that comes back to a key aspect of Rangatiratanga. Luke's mentioned tikanga Māori, Māori law, as as a core part of this this framework. And within that, the respect, responsibilities, those collective responsibilities of um, of hapu to their people, is a is a core part of this. So you know they saw that as. Luke said that people were going to be vulnerable and in already in precarious positions, and so they really needed to be looked after. And so that idea of being responsible for people and responsible, in fact, for the land and the natural environment is a core part of te kanga Māori and rangatiratanga as uh, a larger element.
1: Um, one one uh, thread I saw in the whole book was that we, we were going to do it i mean if it's accepted or not people agree with it or no it doesn't ma- it, it doesn't matter we were we were, we were going to do it it's our action we took the action and everybody um, each of the four checkpoints they did it in a different different way um, so can you just outline some examples of the different ways that they uh, they went through it obviously people have to buy the book to read all of it but uh, just some examples of how dif- what were the differences between the four
2: There were a few differences. One was how they were organised. So this is something I alluded to before, that some were uh, hapu-led checkpoints, that just their hapu decided that that was what they were going to do. Another was uh, just a group of community members who initiated it themselves and ended up partnering with a health organisation that was um, part of that community. The one we looked at in the far north was a collaboration between two different iwi. And the one that we looked at in Taranaki was um, one iwi that was part of a broader collective of eight iwi that were all in communication about it. So different organisational and authority structures. Some were a hard border, 24-7 on the checkpoint, not letting anyone in or out, um, which was in line with the uh, government lockdown regulations of that period. Um, Others were a major highway through the middle of the country, so that was not as much of a hard border, but was pulling people over and asking uh, questions about whether they should be travelling and then using it also as an opportunity for a public health response. Um, That information on COVID, information on Um, self-isolating and um, lockdown rules and those sorts of things so using it as a mechanism for a broader initiative not just stopping cars and that was actually something that was common to all of the checkpoints this was one part of a broader response that included things like food packages and health information and getting information generally about COVID and what was happening this was quite early on in the pandemic when we were talking about their experiences. So there was a lot of uncertainty and all of the checkpoints used the opportunity to be sharing that information with Fano in and their communities. So so some differences and some core similarities. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and also it's when when it when the copa then is then highlighted in the media and a different news item comes in uh, it's unfortunate that it is outlined in a way that a couple of guys they just went on the road and then they put the road cones on and that's that's what they're doing, right? And then you get the sense of that's what's happening. And so when you read the book, you get an idea of what background went uh, work went behind setting up one um, one checkpoint, and then afterwards people felt the consequences. Of it in terms of their own relationships within the community and, and the relationship within with, with with the police, and then a positive positive positives came out of it as well in the end. That um, we will talk about that uh, later. My my question was it that why is it and it, it might not be a thing related to the book, but why the deeper level of investigation, not done by media when covering these topics. Um, for instance, uh, the, uh, uh, we only highlight what David Seymour has said or what someone else has said, and then we don't go deeper. So uh, why? What, why what, what are the main reasons around that?
0: I think the media uh, in some ways, uh, you know, we know there's a lot of fair bit of research about racism in the media, but we mm. also know that the media are pressed for time and they don't, mm. <laughs> you know, they have a certain um, a time slot that they've got to fill for whether it's TV or radio or whatever. So they're pressed for time. So they, they're taking shortcuts to the fastest way of building their package um, to deliver. And so, you know, we have had over the years, key Māori journalists have tried to encourage reporters to add a little bit, even if it's sort of 30 seconds of the history of things at the beginning of stories to give it a better context. Um, But I think often this is down to, um, uh, and some might say this is a generous (laughs) interpretation, Mm -hmm. but down Mm -hmm. to speed and needing to rush stories. I mean, others would say that you can see Systematic racism uh, in the media against Maori, um, and the, the sorts of voices that are privileged are those that are the, the loudest, and uh, you know, from particular elite, wealthy, uh, usually Pakeha communities. Uh, so, you know, there's there's different elements, I think, to it. One of the key points here, though, was that this the reason to kind of share the stories of. These heroes, really, on these checkpoints Mm. was to show all of the work that goes in and in some ways to try and fight against those stereotypes that Māori are just sort of sitting around or waiting for things to happen to them. You know, when actually we know from being involved in Māori communities, people are so busy, trying so hard to look after others, to look after um Again, the natural environment, you know, and there are so many meetings on weekends. They're not just, you know, out fluffing around in the in the spa pool. You know, there are meetings, mm. and in this case, rosters, late nights of people collecting resources together, or delivering food parcels to people, or finding cones, as you say, and signs, and hivers, vests, and masks, and you know, there's people mobilising all of their networks. Mm. So much time and energy going into these sorts of things, and I think this is just one of the many examples examples. examples of the kind of work that Māori are engaged in. And we know, I mean, some of the research on volunteering is a bit dated now, and perhaps if someone's interested in doing another thesis on that, they should. But we know from from some of the research around volunteering in New Zealand, Māori have some of the highest levels of engagement in what we would call, you know, mahi aroha or volunteer work and that's, that's because of those obligations again to community, to hapū, whānau hapū, marae as well, Um, and your communities and the whenua, Um, so people out killing possums and, you know, engaged in protecting the environment in all sorts of ways. That's, again, all part of the time and energy Māori spend on on their responsibilities.
1: Yeah, one thing I found very um, um, fascinating was that there's a, uh, there was like a, a system of bureaucracy was created within everybody just took up their responsibility and then their own paperwork systems. And uh, there um, uh, were lines of, um, you can say, hierarchies within, within, uh, within them. And they just set it up. And it's like, we don't need any, anybody else's approval. We can do it ourselves. We don't need to wait for the government to step in.
0: And actually, you can see that in many places. If you look at um, marae and the way that marae operates in times of tangi, for example, or, you know, one great example was when, um, sadly, um, uh, Te Atairangi Kahu, the, the Maori queen, passed away. And there were thousands of people descending on the marae. Um, to pay their respects to her. And again, it was the same (laughs) sort of thing uh, of mobilisation of rosters and, as you say, a kind of chain of Mm. command, if you like, Mm. everyone going about and doing their things um, and knowing their their role and knowing what needs to be done and just getting on with it. And I think coming back to the title of the book, Stepping Up, that was Mm. pretty much what people were doing. They knew what needed to be done and they went out and and did it. And I think we can see that at, at many different levels, including marae during tangihana thats the funeral um, occasions of a funeral. Um, you know, people need to cook. You don't know how many numbers of people are going to be coming onto the marae to pay their respects. So you—you you, you know, the the purchasing of food and then the cooking of food and then the serving and, and looking after and caring for visitors all sort of takes place in a kind of seamless way people know Mm. that that has to be done and so they just get on with looking after guests and uh, all the formalities that needed to be engaged in so you know i think we can in uh, many areas of maori society this tikanga um, continues to flourish i would say um, and needs to be given greater recognition
2: I think the uh, point you were about organisation was one thing that I learned as well is that the um, different groups involved in the checkpoints had been in touch with each other. And they had, uh, the, especially those who set them up early, um, had developed uh, paperwork or protocols in their organisation um, that they had shared with others. And some of the ones to follow their lead used some of that and did, some of their own things, and but there was this um, cooperation between all the different groups that I didn't realise existed, and is another illustration of um, the the systems and processes that do just get established and are another example of rangatiratanga and self determination actually being cooperative as well.
1: Yes, um, and it is. It, it... As 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 they went on um, in the media as well, and when the second round of it came up in um, in time of the traffic light system, um, when the when the um, they come up, there was um, essentially I saw this usage of uh, the words um, roadblock being used quite a lot. But these were not roadblocks; they were just checkpoints just to say keep communities safe. So sometimes the wordings that are used in the media as well are kind of twisty in a way that um, they lead to a bit of a confrontation in the comment section, and I guess that uh, favors well in terms of um, click, uh, cl- uh, uh, click rates, uh, etc. cetera. Um, one thing I wanted to ask that there was this, uh, it, it, and is discussed in the learning section, that Rangatirathanga does not have to be initiated by the crown or the partnership does not have to be initiated by the crown. And, and time and time again, through my studies as well, I've seen studies in, in the health sector as well, when uh, when Copama Maori research are uh, done or um, things are done through tikanga or uh, are done for Maori, by, Ma- by Maori, they turn to success. So what is this niggling um, thing that is stopping the crown or other organization to just let go a little bit? What is this? Um, it's it's happening now a little bit um, that we see from some of the government initiatives, but what is this niggling thing that is stopping um, the government or the crown? And it is taking so many decades and hundreds of years.
2: I think the crown has a long history of reluctance to hand over power,
1: hmm.
2: and Maria might put it in stronger terms than that, but... Um, that there's this power imbalance between um, on the part of the crown that sometimes in the face of the most obvious evidence, they still are hesitant to hand over any power. And there's this um, paternalism mixed with some racism that there's this implicit assumption that only they can do certain things and only... Um, they can do things well and in occasional circumstances they'll invite others to join them and i agree with you that that is um starting to change but it's changing very slowly and there are still examples um where there's refusal to change at all and i think what we saw here was almost like catching them off guard And Mm. not a deliberate attempt to catch them off guard, but this was a crisis. And I think the rubber hits the road in a crisis. And the government hesitated. I think overall they've they've done relatively well, but there was this hesitance to take strong, firm action straight away to protect communities in the face of an immediate threat that those communities were like, right, we're doing it for ourselves, and took that opportunity. And I think there's value in sharing that story because it illustrates that it was possible and it was good. And these weren't initiatives designed to exclusively protect Māori. They were for everyone. Everyone in those communities was vulnerable to COVID. And when you're in a pandemic, everyone is vulnerable if one of us is vulnerable. It's the most obvious example of that collective need to take care of each other. And so these were initiatives designed to help everybody. And that's been true of a lot of the Māori responses to the pandemic. I think I read a few weeks ago that in Auckland, the vast majority of people who've been vaccinated in West Auckland have done it through Te or Waipareira, a Māori provider out there. And they have been the most efficient, effective protector of all of the people in that community through a Kopapa Māori way of doing things. So I think we have these examples where it is good for everyone, but despite that, the Crown is still reluctant to hand over power. And this was an example of the benefits that can happen um, when they do, whether or not that was fully what was intended from the Crown in this instance is, is up for debate, but that's what ended up happening, and I think there's value in demonstrating the results of that.
1: So, Luke said, "Maria, you might put it in a stronger <laughs> words are there are there stronger words?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, an assumption of superiority and supremacy on the part of the the crown, and as Luke said, they've always been reluctant or consistently reluctant to relinquish power, and I think part of that is about their the assumption of their own superiority and the assumption of parliamentary supremacy in fact and a singular uh, idea of sovereignty you know this it sort of fundamentally goes back i think to some of these core elements but the assumption of superiority is is, it, is at the heart of it um despite actually you know much evidence to the contrary and this is one of those cases and i think another part of it um uh has also been and and we've seen this in the way the vaccine um and then the second shots and now the boosters are being rolled out um there's also a fear of uh a perceived fear of a backlash from the dominant population and you know uh, if they seem to be favoring maori in some particular Mm. way and you know this sort of nonsense just keeps um, re-emerging in in the discourse about it, um, despite what the public health experts say um, in terms of prioritising those who are vulnerable, prioritising equity considerations and so on, that continues to be fluffed to the side. Um, But we can see change, and I guess that's where we kind of come to at the end of the book is is some hopeful um, thoughts around change that we can see occurring um, in the area of law um, where um, Luke is, um, in some government agencies and in some universities uh, and in in our students that we see coming um, to the university, you know, their thinking is a little bit different. They're really keen to learn te reo Māori. They're interested in learning about tikanga Māori, Māori law, as a first source of law. Um, and so that interest, I think, you know, it's slow, but also growing. Um, and that, I hope, will enable us to, to eventually have some sort of constitutional transformation um, to to uh, then truly have a kind of tidity led country, in, in which case these sorts of decisions about pandemics or, or whatever can be jointly made um, in a genuine way.
1: Yes, um, and it, it uh, you have brought it to the point uh, that um, I'm actually currently studying. I'm currently working on different formations of government based on Tetriti, uh, and and is my biggest um, um, source of information on that. Um, however, I feel that uh, there was some... Uh, Extensive work done by um, on on the Matikimai report, and then 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 some some suggestions were made in the He Puapua report later as well, and then before there's been constitutional uh, transformation work that has been happening in terms of consultation even before Matikimai, big reports have been issued. Um, the my concern always is uh, that it's it it's kind of sp- staying in the, bu- it never goes out. It stays in the bubble. And as soon as it comes out in the media and then there's a backlash and the government backtracks and starts to say, no, this is not law. This is not law. And then it, it, it becomes, uh, it becomes a, it becomes an issue in that sense, rather than moving, moving forward. Small things are happening now. This is health. Uh, Maori health authority is being established. Um, I don't know where I was going through with this. Uh, with this, but uh, my point is that this book kind of exemplifies the fact that from from a small community level to the government level, this can happen. Tino Ranga it is or is very very possible, and there's no fear. There should be no fear around it.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that, and I think one of the things that i've taken from this project is that i now believe it will be led from a community level that the government could turn around tomorrow and say we're changing the constitution and it would be great and i think they should but i don't actually think it's the thing that would make the biggest difference i think the thing that will make the biggest long-term difference is if we are resourcing and trusting these communities and whānau and hapu and iwi to exercise their authority themselves and believe that that is going to be good for everyone and that and sharing the examples of that is how we build some of that momentum towards the bigger constitutional changes that do need to happen but need a, a groundswell of support i think uh, to an extent to really stick long term the pace of change is always very frustrating and i fully agree with any um anyone who would say that the government needs to do more and has been really um has let us down um in things like what maria was talking about their refusal to follow the evidence on which communities are most vulnerable to this so but for me that's an illustration that that is not where change is coming from uh, in the long term and in the most substantive ways. It's coming from communities who know what is needed and will just step up and do it. And the more we can enable that, the more that the the sum of that is what we will one day call constitutional change, along with changes in law and policy that will enable that, but it will be this uh, ground up, groundswell of change, not a prime minister one day deciding that everything is different now.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree with that point, but I, I go through common sections of regular people quite a lot and it's quite disheartening. So sometimes I have to turn them off all the time. Uh, (laughs) So the, um, this was the prime example of people just, um, just uh, ignoring everything and just taking it on board and uh, doing it themselves. Now, in terms of um, uh, moving forward, um, is is there anything that can be done in other sectors? Like this was the it, was, it this was the health sector, are, are there any examples happening at the moment in other sectors of um, of um, rangatira being expressed in such a way?
0: I think there's things happening in every sector, everywhere I look, Mm. there's change occurring. And even actually from the government side, I mean, I I agree Mm. with what Luke was saying in in terms of incremental change, in fact, has been, if you think of the proliferation of all the little things that have occurred um, over the last 30 years, you know, that has brought about so much more change than, uh, you know, a kind of big bang event uh, as such, just small things have inched us forward. Of course, yes, you're right, we've had lots of steps backwards again, um, but the general flow of the tide, um, uh, a bit like sea level rise, is mm-hmm. <laughs> still occurring. Maybe that's a bad analogy. <laughs> but I think everywhere that we look from the kind of environmental policies, Um, local government, things that are occurring, local government, national security, international trade, um, there's change occurring everywhere. And behind most of those changes are Māori who have been putting their time, effort, energy, tears, um, hopes and dreams into all of these um, uh, areas to try and make small changes um, that will proliferate. And I think part of that is also a reflection of the decentralised um, way that um Māori operates um, in, a, in a very in, in a sort of dispersed way, but that's that is reflected in some of the um, current political systems we have. If you think about central government and then the kind of layers of regional councils and territorial authorities, we also re- already have a system which could easily um, and can easily um, better recognise a rangatiratanga sphere of political authority. It's not too huge leap. So I think we can see rangatiratanga being enacted in lots of different um, areas around the place, and hapu uh, again taking the lead in, in many of those spaces. So I think there's still a lot to be hopeful for, mm. and uh, and still, you know, although their racism, you know, continues to, um, uh, you know, resurrect itself um, and become visible in many places. There are still also other people um that are quietly you know pacing along alongside Maori, lots of tangata tiriti who are supportive of the things that Maori are doing, lots of tangata tiriti who will now say something publicly um you know put put themselves on the line to defend uh you know policies for maori or uh, uh, practices that support maori, and you know that continues to give me hope uh, as well. Seeing that support, um, and and we need to work together as communities. We're all here, and um, you know the the uh, environment's in a dire state. <laughs> as if we need mm-hmm. to remind ourselves of that, and we need to work together um, to have a better and flourishing environment and better relationships um, between ourselves and between ourselves um, and uh, the you know the natural environment. So, you know. We Just keep plodding on, and I think there's still a lot to be hopeful for.
1: Well, that's um, that kind of brings me to that that that, that point of um, um, before we wrap up. I, I had that question um, in terms of gen- if you uh, take yourself out of your uh, of the academic, or you take the academic head out and get out of the circle. In general population, do you think there is an understanding of? Um, the responsibility towards the tehtiriti or the actual tetiriti and the concepts of uh, um like of tino rangatiratanga mana motuhake um, is that a widespread understanding or something needs to be done to have that understanding widespread?
2: I think there have been a lot of myths and that's been mm. something that has characterized the history of this country for the last 200 years that when you say to someone what do you know about the treaty do you think the treaty should be upheld any of those types of questions you get a range of responses but a lot of the negative ones i think are based on mistruths and myths and in my view what we need is to be unpacking and explaining some of what it actually means to uphold the treaty. So in the examples we've been talking about in the book and other examples that um, Maria has been mentioning, it's things like should the application of rangatiratanga as protected by te tiriti or Waitangi in this context is should we let communities who know what's best for their whānau lead a response to a health crisis? And knowing that they can and having ideas for what needs to happen should we resource that properly and allow them to do that and if you ask that question to an ordinary stranger on the street i would say that 90 percent of people would say absolutely it would be crazy to not do that and i'm not naive about the challenges of um overcoming people's myths and biases and racism but I think there's there's work which can be done there around actually explaining what it might look like to uphold totality, because most of the time there will be far less pushback on those sorts of things, and I think that can be one important aspect of, from a Maori and a Pakeha perspective, a um, Tauiwi perspective, of educating and understanding and um, having conversations with each other as a whole country about what this might look like because I think it's less scary than people think and I think the myths around Tiriti or Wātangi have made that more scary for a lot of people than it actually will be.
1: Yes. Um, oh, Maria, you were saying nothing?
0: Um, oh, yeah, no, I mean, I think yeah. that's, that's right. There's, you know, I, I still think... Um, in relation to people's specific hobbies or their area of work or, or whatever, um, you know, there are ways of continuing to explain what tachyty might mean in those different contexts. And I think looks right. There's a lot of fear about um, and misunderstanding or myths about what <laughs> what that might be. And some of that's been exacerbated and sensationalised by the media over the past decades and been quite unhelpful. Um, but I, I also hear a lot of um uh non Maori coming and saying, I'm 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 keen, you know, I'm open to this, but what what do you want me to do? You know, how do mm. I uphold it? And so that's the the more common question, is not the kind of is not um sort of straight racism. It's actually people that they don't they wanna know the how, you know, what are they meant to be doing? There's an openness there to actually supporting Māori or being tēniti-led, but they, they they don't have a clue, basically, what they're supposed to do. And so I guess that's where some of the fear comes from, is um, are we going to do something wrong and are the Māori people going to get angry at us? Um, but the willingness and the openness is there. So I think we do have some space now to um, work on answering those how questions. And again, whether it's in health or national security uh, or, you know, you know, parliament, um, that's that's a key question. What does it look like? And I think we do actually have lots of different examples in all these areas of what it could look like, and what some amazingly successful um, partnerships have been in different in different areas. And I think it's sharing again those stories um, of success where Maori and non-Maori have worked together in, in quite different spaces. Again, from you know pest um, control. <laughs> To international trade, where Maori and uh, non-Maori, or Maori and the Crown, depending which way you're wanting to look at it, um, have worked together, and there's, there are lots of those stories, and I think a key thing is now um, to keep sharing those, um, and that keeps people hopeful and helps answer the "how are we going to do this?" Uh, question.
1: Mm. So. Um... Now we've come to a point I mean I can talk about this subject because I'm doing I am studying it as well for hours and hours and I can I cannot get better resource than you two um, on this to take all that information um, in but I think we'd have to come to a wrap up now now in terms of uh, uh, the book um, there is it's it's a very uh, academically written book but it's very 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 easy to read like for instance there's a uh, introduction to tinnoranga Tirathanga. then there is the uh, uh the the case studies uh that people were talked to and how the research was done and then the lessons were w- which were learned and obviously w- what's the way to the the future have I have I grasped it correctly the the table of contents uh here so so that people understand uh because we we talked about several different copa here but obviously the book is basically based on the concept of Tinuranga tiratanga and um the checkpoints and how uh that e- exemplifies it so um in the end up so what's what's um what's coming in the future for you this is a customary question that we ask every time with every author what's uh, what's on the plate any big books coming through any big articles coming through any big topics of research you're working on
2: I'm trying to finish my PhD, which has got a life of its own at the moment. So this is about the most coherent uh, set of words I've strung together in weeks, to be honest, and I'm deep <laughs> in that. So hopefully um, in the next few months, finishing that for me, and then we'll see what's next.
0: Um, I'm involved in a couple of different projects. One is looking at Tiriti-led um, governance of of the environment um, as part of the, one of our national science challenges, the Biological Heritage National Science Challenge. So that's um, a fair bit of work. And then also looking back at my own discipline of political science and international relations and trying to encourage um, those teaching uh, in those departments within universities uh, to think a little more about what um, being biocultural and Bi political in those places might mean um, so yeah did, again part of the, a more international trend of decolonising disciplines and universities but in our case focused on our tibiti, um framework.
1: Oh nice um, and any 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 books coming out Maria any 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 anything in works?
0: Um, actually, in a short while, um, I've got a book with Julie MacArthur needed collection on environment politics and policy in Aotearoa New Zealand coming out so there's some fantastic chapters in there um
1: so that's that's one thing oh nice maybe we'll talk about that as well (laughs) (laughs) um so uh Thank you so much for taking up time to have um, have a chat with uh, with me and for our uh, for our listeners. will be a quite useful conversation over um, over a lengthy time, which is which was nice. Um, um, it is a it is a great book. It is a short book and is a quick read, so everybody should um, go to um, Huya uh, Publications and order it now. Um, and it will be a great addition, um, uh, to your lear- uh, learning. So, uh, thank you both for, um, joining us and everybody else. Um, I'll see you with another book soon. Uh, Noreira, Tenakoto katoa. ora.